This evening, we would like to discuss this single word that is at the top of page number 38, insight. Have you ever heard a boring sermon? Have you ever preached a boring sermon? What is the difference between a boring sermon and an interesting sermon? Well, I gave some hints on this on Sunday morning when we referenced Mortimer Adler's How to Stay Awake While Reading. What was Adler's rule for how to stay awake while reading? Be an active listener. Be asking questions of the text. You rarely fall asleep in a debate. So debate with the book and you may have a chance at staying awake. Well, in the same sense, we're coming out to sermons and preaching and saying, how can we be preachers who inspire life and interest rather than preachers who get 10 minutes in or 15 minutes in and we see people nodding? One of the answers to that question is we need to increase our insight. Do you know the word insight? This evening, we're going to study it under three headings. If you look there at the preview, you'll see three headings. The first is defining. I should really call it describing. I'm going to give you six descriptions of insight. I'm attempting to define it, but each time I defined it, it honestly became so cold that I feared there'd be no good in it. So I defined, described it rather than defining it. And then secondly, there are five directions, which will be the second point, the finding insight, five directions. And then thirdly, imitating insight. And that's, that's not a good thing in this lecture. That's the ways that Satan attempts to imitate insight. And there we'll cover two dangers. So three Ds, if you want to put those in the notes, or you can just keep the ones that are there. Six descriptions, that's the first point. Five directions for how to do this practically. And then two dangers. And when we cover the dangers, I'll ask you to ask yourself, have you ever seen this? And number two, what? Have you ever done it? Yeah. Let's begin at the beginning. On page number 38, describing insight or defining insight. And we're going to define it here or describe it six ways. And under each, we have biblical examples. Now, when I give these examples, many more could be given either from life and the conversations you've had with coworkers or with your wife, or if you're honest, with yourself. But let's just pause with two or three examples under each. Number one, letter A, insight is, underline the word making. Insight is making true, but commonly overlooked connections between ideas. Insight is making true but commonly overlooked connections. So underline the word making and the word connections. There are a few people sitting here with books but with no one beside them. If you'd like a book, you can move over here by Nico, by Um Cornet. If you'd like to be able to follow along, I see some who uh, we don't have copies for you. Insight is making these connections. Now, if I were going to define it, well, I am defining it. I think this letter A is probably the best of the six at summarizing a definition. It's connecting things that you had not previously seen connected. So as I've gotten the examples, I'll just go through these. The first example I've listed is the death of Samson. Years ago, I was reading the the book of Judges. And after I had finished reading it, I called my good friend, Ivor Jeffries. And as I told him that I've been reading Judges and trying to study these judges, he came out and said to me, have you ever been amazed with how Samson is a picture of Christ? And I said, no, I I don't see what you mean. Because he was a bad example. He trusted in flesh and, and what do you mean? And he gave me this and it has stood in my mind since. Samson, like Jesus, did more in his death than in his life. Now he connected something there. He took the cross of Jesus and he took Judges 1630. 
And he put those two verses together. I had never seen that jump. But he made that jump for me. And now when I read Judges, I'm eager to get to the end so that I can think and relive that part. Yes, yes, that's it. It was a connection I hadn't seen before. Insight is making those connections. Like Sunday night when the question was asked, it is appointed to man to die how many times? But then uh, the Cato raised the question, how can this be true, seeing all the people at the second coming of Jesus will not die? And Alphaeus raised his hand and said, well, Lazarus didn't die once. He died more than once. And someone else had already said, Enoch, uh, Isaac, Enoch and Elijah didn't die. But you see, what they both did was they made connections that may not be immediately obvious to us. They grab verses from other places. I especially like the Lazarus one because that's positive. He, he died twice. And that was insightful. I look at number two. Eve is called Adam's helper in Genesis 2, 18. Again, this is most of these examples. I only wish I could say from my long years of experience, they're mine. Most of these are from other godly men. I cannot remember who preached this first. It may have been Mark Minnick. But after I heard it, I went and researched the Hebrew words and found the, the man to be accurate. Eve is called the helper or the help for Adam. And sometimes feminists or people who don't understand the wonderful role of women will think that is somehow derogatory, not realizing that that exact same Hebrew word is used of Jehovah for Israel at the Red Sea. Jehovah was not a nice little add-on, like going from, from vinyl seats to leather seats in your vehicle. He's an absolute necessity for the children of Israel. And any woman who may say, oh, I'm only a helper. That's like saying Jehovah was only a helper for Israel. Insight. It's connecting these ideas. Insight number two, letter B. Insight is underlined. Seeing. Letter B. Insight is seeing from unexpected perspectives. Underline seeing and perspectives. So that what was hidden is now in the open. That is looking from a different perspective. I think perhaps the author who most commonly strikes me with this gift is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis seems to be able to see things from perspectives that I never saw. I never looked at it that way. That's insightful. His books grip even when they're short. They grip because... He looked at the same thing that you were looking at, but he stood on the other side of the tree so he could see the shadow when you couldn't. Or he stood on the other side of the tree and you were in the shadow, you couldn't see the fruit or the new leaves or the buds. So some examples here, 2 Timothy 2.10. Um, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Election, some people say, will discourage evangelism. But Paul the Apostle thought, I think election actually makes you evangelize. This was a great motive to me in my years of being a minister and evangelizing. Uh, number two, is Christ our example? Well, yes, he is, but not in his pattern of repentance. You can't follow Christ in his pattern of repentance because he never repented. Letter three, insight is grasping the relationship, underline grasping and relationship, between individual parts and the larger system. It's going from the parts to the whole. Insight looks at Ephesians 5.25 and says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And then it says, wait a minute. Now, if that's true, that husbands must love their wives like Christ loved the church, and I only love one wife, the wife who gave me this ring on the 25th of June, 20, uh, 2005, if I only love that woman in that unique way, then Christ only loves his bride in that unique bride-like way. He may have other kinds of loves because he is overwhelming in his glories and he pours out glories like a waterfall but this particular kind of beauty this 
conjugal love, this husband love, it's reserved for his bride, not the goats. It's grasping relationship between the parts and the whole. So we have the part, that is, the husband and wife relationship, and the whole, what God is doing to redeem the world in Christ. Uh, Letter D, insight is weighing the importance. Underline those words, weighing importance. And here on the side, you can put the word proportion. On the side by letter D, use the word proportion. Insight is weighing the importance of different parts of the whole so that their relative value is apparent to each other in light of the larger body. That's proportion. What makes the human face so beautiful? What is it about the human form that is so beautiful? One of the beauties, it's a perfect proportion. Expand the ears three times the size and something's not right. In fact, just make anything a little bit bigger and it's not right. And Michelangelo's David, which I have only read about in Francis Schaeffer's book, How Then Shall We Live? Francis Schaeffer said that he went there and saw Michelangelo's enormous three meter high statue of David carved out of one block of marble. And he noticed, or he was told, I'm not sure which, that the hands were unusually large. Everything else was perfectly proportioned, but the hands were large because Michelangelo was a humanist trying to give the impression and send the message, man can do whatever he wants. Look at these hands. They're larger than life because I can do anything I set my mind to. Proportion is very important, which is why when Picasso, the modern artist, said, I want to show my godless philosophy of the world. Picasso was a wicked man and did not know the Bible, did not love the Bible or Jesus Christ. And when Picasso decided that he wanted to create art, he wanted to send his message. Has anyone ever seen any works by Picasso? Caleb and Colin. Picasso's works are all fractured proportion. They'll move, he'll move the ear down where the chin should be. He'll split the eyes. He'll move the mouth up where it shouldn't be. Legs and arms and positions and its sizes that they shouldn't be. Because Picasso is trying to send the message, I don't like the way things are. I'm against this world. I see in the world nothing but disorder and chaos because he rejected the Christian God. Insight is when we are able to look at something and keep it just the size it should be. If there is a doctrine in the Bible, we need to ask, how often does the scripture mention this? How strongly does the scripture portray this? So, for example, the doctrine of the cross, it ought to be very large because it's commonly in the Bible. And when it's in the Bible, it's in the Bible in the strongest of terms. Like, may it never be that I should boast except what? In the cross. When Paul comes to preach, he says, I preach nothing but Christ crucified. And the other apostles spoke in similar ways. So when we preach, we should have an unusually large proportion of the cross because that's what scripture has. It's insightful to see the proportion and keep it there. Compare that with the practice of women wearing hats. I feel, as I've said before, 70% sure that the Bible, that that the hats are either cultural or that they refer to the woman's hair. I'm not 100% sure. But I have to remember, it's only one passage of the Bible. I still want to know what it means, and I'm trying to read it and study it. I've labored to understand that passage, and I think this is what it means. It's a difficult passage, but let's keep it in proportion. And if the church or the denomination says, we return to this repeatedly, I would say, how Central is this to the scripture. It's insightful to see the proportion. 
examples here. Christ commands us to be baptized and to believe on him. What is found more often in the Bible, the commands to be baptized or the commands to believe in Christ? Which one is found more commonly? To believe in Christ. Which one is found more dominantly? That is, it's found without qualifications. It's found uh, in multiple places. It's in imperatives. Well, it's to believe on Christ. But we're not against baptism. I I am a Baptist. But we're keeping it in proportion. Uh, Here's an interesting example on the top of page 39. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Uh, this is 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. I do not allow a woman to teach or to take any authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, is this doctrine as vital to Christianity as the cross of Jesus? No. Or, what if someone uses this doctrine in order to avoid the cross of Jesus. That is, what if a woman calls herself a pastor and by so doing, she says, I became a pastor because God spoke to me. Not because I read it in the Bible. God spoke to me. And when God speaks to me, then I can say anything else he speaks. And so he's given me a prophetic ministry. So then this woman who calls herself a pastor does not preach the Bible. This happened right here. Chifiwa Irene who died a few years ago. I wrote it on my, on my blog, an obituary of a false prophet. Chibiwa Irene was a false prophet living in Toyando. I went to her church twice. I tried to find her there. She called herself a prophet and said, God spoke to me and called me. You say, well, let's keep it in proportion. Yes, but then notice this. She used that twisting in order to twist everything else. So, if allowing a woman to preach is covering for a settled refusal to bow the knee to Christ, then suddenly that becomes far more important. It is important at all accounts, but far more important when it's used as a cover for many other sins. Let me give you one more example. This will be on the other side. Uh, Mary Slessor was a missionary on the east coast of Africa, the country of Zanzibar. And she went there as a woman preacher. I have not seen her Bible, but I heard Mark Minnick preach once. And he said, I saw her Bible when he was in a church history tour of Europe. And in the page on 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 Mary Slessor wrote beside verse 12, Oh no, Paul. Now Mary Slessor was an Orthodox Christian and she taught the Bible. She was wrong, apparently, on this doctrine. But thankfully, she still subordinated herself in an inconsistent way, but to the praise of God's glory, she went and gave the gospel and was called the Queen of the Cannibals. And from Scotland led many people to Christ in Zanzibar. And we thank God for that, even though she was wrong on that important teaching. Proportion is insightful. Letter E. Insight is stretching past the explicit statements of Scripture to a logically coherent, biblically sanctioned conclusion that often escapes the notice of others. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you hear what I just said? Someone's going to say, that's the beginning of heresy. What phrase in letter E would be the beginning of false doctrine? Insight is what? Stretching past. Right. Stretching past the explicit statements of Scripture. We say, we can't do that. We can't go past the statements of Scripture. Well, we can't go past the statements of Scripture if by that we mean beyond the meaning Or authority of scripture. In that case, I say a thousand times, no, never. May God save us all from going past scripture by that out of bounds of its authority or meaning. But if we say past scripture, the explicit statements. Well, let me give you an example right here. Number one, God loves the world. What's the reference? John 3, 16. True or false? Does he love the world? 
Psalm 5 5. Did you know that God hates sinners? Psalm 5 5. So then, here's the conclusion I reach. God in his infinite complexity is able to both love and hate the same person at the same time, but in different ways. The statement that I just said right there, God is so beautifully, infinitely complex that he is able to both love and hate the same person at the same time, but not in the same way. Is there any verse of scripture that says the statement I just said? No, there's not. But there are two statements, John 3, 16 and Psalm 5, verse 5. And I'm trying to marry them because they are married. They're from the mind of God. And we're going to need to preach them. And if you preach verse by verse through John, you're going to get to verse 16. And if you go through the Psalms, you might find one of the five times that it references that God hates sinners. You're going to have to do something with that. And what Arthur Pink does in the last chapter of Sovereignty of God, not published by Banner of Truth, at least when they published it, they took this chapter out. But in the last chapter of Sovereignty of God, A.W. Pink says, therefore God does not love sinners, he hates sinners. Whoa, no, 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 that's not right. And then he says, when it says God loves the world, that only means the elect. I said, whoa, you see, A.W. Pink was looking at these two scriptures and saying, let's not go past the explicit statement of scripture making logical connections. But it would have been helpful if A.W. Pink had remembered what the Confession of Faith, both the Westminster and the Baptist Confession say in its chapter on scripture. In its chapter on scripture, especially Westminster Faith, is very clear when it says, we receive as authoritative the words of the Bible and This is almost word for word what Westminster says. Whatever may be derived by good and necessary consequence from them. Did you hear that? What is authoritative in the Westminster Confession? The words of the Bible and also whatever can come from them by good and necessary consequence. In other words, logic. The Bible, the very words of the Bible are the authority for us. And then also... Anything logically consistent with that. That's in the confession of faith. And I think it's exactly right. And I think it helps us here when we try to take John 3.16 and Psalm 5.5. So we can honestly say God loves the world and he loves sinners. But he is also burning with anger toward them. Don't play with him. Because he is full of kindness and anger. Which one's going to come out on top In your case. Letter F. Insight is attaching the right metaphor to the right affection. I feel like Spurgeon might say this is the definition of insight. But then he could give us so many examples. And I can't. I'm so poor in this category. But there's a few examples. Christ loves us like a husband. Not like a boyfriend. He doesn't love that way. We must love God like a father and not like our dog or ice cream. There's a certain kind of love to be given to dogs. There's a certain kind of love to be given to ice cream. And there's a unique love given to a father. And there's an even greater love given to the great father. There are different kinds of love and the right metaphor gets it, which is why God calls himself a father. And he calls himself a husband. Another example here in the notes. A sinner has followed his lusts like someone. Like a man who just made a mistake. Titus 1.15, like someone who's insane. That's very offensive. Do you see that metaphor? Metaphors can be the most offensive things because we know their meaning strikes right to the heart. But we must maintain the metaphors of the Bible which is one more reason why we must never give in to feminism. God chose the metaphor of father. God chose the metaphor that his son is a son and not a daughter. He chose those and they stand for all eternity and many others like that. So in each of these six categories, there are factors that make insight uncommon. Usually it has to do with this underline time for reflection. Usually that's the problem. Time 
for reflection. It's letter G. Letter G, time for reflection. That's usually our problem. We just need more time. But there's a second difficulty, and that's presuppositions. Because our presuppositions also open or close our minds to insight. And yes, there's a typo there, the word or close or minds. It should be O-U-R, our minds. So there's, when, we, when we think about insight, we can be blocked from our insight by one of, two er- one of two ways. Number one, because we just didn't give enough time or have the time. And number two, perhaps our presuppositions have stopped us. Maybe we have a presupposition that everything will just be given to us magically. Maybe we have a presupposition that shouting and excitement is more important than truth. There are many presuppositions that work in the background of our mind that can work against insight. Insight is really finding a piece of the puzzle that was not stated, but you found it. So let's give some directions. Finding insight. Five directions. Number one, read insightful authors or talk to insightful people. Underline that. Read insightful authors or talk to insightful people. This is why you need to build up in yourself the skill of reading good books. This is why uh, Brother Schleyline taught a course called How to Study, which is based off of Mortimer Adler's book, How to Read a Book. This is why I did a course last year, The Great Books, which are not all of the great books that deserve to be discussed. It's just 20 or so books that will be very helpful to you. We need to master interacting with great ideas presented in powerful ways. Since we learn by imitation, get as near as you can to the people who are most insightful. And if God has been so kind as to give you a living person who's actually insightful, get with that person as often as you can or people as often as you can. Most commonly, the most insightful people are all what? Dead. Usually. Or if there are some alive, they're far away. Get their books. Read, even if by degrees, read. If you start reading one book a month, you'll read 12 books in a year. In 10 years, you'll have 120. 120, the greatest books read. But maybe you'll increase like I did. And you start with one book a month and then you move to two and then three. So that after 10 years, maybe it's 400 books that you were able to read or more. Letter B, underline, teach your eyes to see the big picture. And I want to stay the rest of the night on this, but I'm not going to. And I just want to give a few examples that I hope will make this this, uh, category very clear. Insight can be found when we learn to see the big picture because very few people have the skill of seeing all the details combined into one machine, into one plan, into one action. Very few people can explain the whole Bible in a single sentence or any single book of the Bible in a single sentence. If I ask you, what is the Old Testament in 30 seconds, could you do it? Or would your sentence say things Well, it's kind of like, um. If you practice summarizing great things like a single book, a single argument, a single category of life into one sentence, you'll be stretching your mind to be sharper. You'll be practicing the art of summarizing. And I don't know of a better example than the one I've listed in the notes here. Herman Duiverd, you see his... Dutch name there with so many vowels, similar vowels stuck together. I got this. I have not been reading Doe Verde. I only read two summaries of his works. I've never read his works, but I have gone carefully through Kurt Daniels, who cites Herman Doe Verde in one of the most fascinating chapters of his book, History and Theology of Calvinism. Herman Doe Verde broke up or summarized or categorized all of life into 15 categories. And they're listed here for you on pages 39 and 40. Look at those categories. 
Oh, you have to flip your page. You can't look at them both at the same time. Just read through this list and see if there's any idea in the world that you can think of that doesn't belong somewhere in this list. Numerical, spatial, historical, physical, organic, mental, logical, scientific, lingual, social, economic, aesthetic, political, ethical, religious. I have tried to come up with ideas that don't fit in one of those 15 categories, and I haven't yet found one. They fit somewhere in there. Do we have looked at all of the world, all of the stars, and the galactic clusters? He looked down to earth into mother's love. He looked out into history. He looked back in time. He looked up to kings. He looked down to poor people. He looked at cows. He looked at bees and the waste of a lizard and paint and tile and tried to think, what is all of this put together? He said, well, let's do it this way. And he put it into 15 categories. I wonder, could you do that? Could you look at all of the Bible and say, this is one way to view the Bible, broken up into these sections, so that your sections really summarize the whole. What makes this list so insightful is that he's trying to grasp all of reality and put his arms out and somehow pull all of reality within his grasp. When you are able to do that, you are on the doorstep of insight and your your sermons will bear the mark of a man who's getting the whole picture. He's understanding where, aha, the doctrines of grace fit here. Lordship salvation fits here. Biblical counseling fits here. The doctrine of the church fits here. Past, present, future, God and Satan, it all fits together. Another great example of this, it's not in the notes if you'd like to write it down, is the book by Erwin Lutzer. Erwin Lutzer. And the book, it's the book entitled The Serpent of Paradise. Years ago, I believe it was Paul who assigned this in these lectures. Erwin Lutzer's The Serpent of Paradise. Paul, was that you who assigned that? That book is a study of Satan from eternity past to eternity future. But one of the most remarkable things about that book is that as you study the doctrine of Satan, Erwin Lutzer has almost every doctrine in the Bible in that story of Satan. Because how can you tell the story of Satan without telling the story of God? How can you tell the story of Satan without telling the story of the Son of God? Without talking about man and Noah and Abraham? But I'm talking about the Jews because he's the dragon who's trying to devour the seed of the woman. How can you do it without explaining Revelation? The dragon. How can you do it without explaining millennial views of amillennials and postmillennials? Lutzer summarized basically the entire book in Bible in a 200-page book that was supposed to be the doctrine of Satan. And it was the doctrine of Satan. But because Lutzer had such a thorough grasp Of all of it together, he can give you 200 pages, which could be called The Serpent of Paradise, A Theology of Satan, or Everything in the Bible. When you begin to put your arms around all of the truth in the Bible and in the world, then your people will will feel when you speak the way I feel like when when I read Erwin Lutzer's book. When I read his book, I thought, I'm in the presence of a man who's reaching out to grab all the Bible and really all of history and and say, how does it fit? And I felt gripped when I read that. If you want your people to feel gripped, learn to reach out like Dwey Averd is reaching out. Letter C. Closely related to this practice is the ability to make definitions. Underline that. Make definitions. Brothers and sisters, you must learn to discipline your mind to make definitions. It is the the fundamental discipline of logic. The first 130 pages of Isaac Watts' book on logic. It's a 230-page book. The first 130 pages are devoted to how to make good definitions. And what says as much? I'm sorry, it's not 230 pages. It's over 300. Watts' book on logic. But the first 130 pages are on how 
to make definitions yourself. Yes, you can go to a dictionary, and that's fair enough. Go to the dictionaries. But wasn't there a man who wrote that? How did he write it? He used the tools that Watts used. And the tools that Watts used allowed his definitions to serve for Samuel Johnson, who wrote the Dictionary of the English People. Discipline your mind to make definitions. So that when you come across words in your Bible passage, you can explain what they mean. Even words as simple as an angel or a demon. Your people only think they know what that means. Define it for them so that they'll say, oh, I never realized. Uh, We have an entire course on logic, which we just taught last year. So I'll leave this and move on. In fact, it's online if you'd like to download it. Learn to see the world. Letter D, learn to see the world through analogies. Begin to look at the world through analogies. What is an analogy? We've talked about this before. An analogy is a comparison, a link, a chain, a picture. It's a chain between two ideas. It draws those two ideas together. It makes us understand these two. Reginald is a fighter. Well, there's an analogy right there. I wasn't saying that he was punching people. I meant, oh, difficult things happened to him. And he acted in the midst of those difficult things the way a boxer might act who's fighting against the ropes and about to go down. That's what he did. Now, okay, that picture makes it clear to me. And on and on. Learn to see the world through analogies because the Bible is written filled with analogies. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the servant of the Lord and the son of God. God is the father, the king, the judge, the shield, the song. Look at that analogy for a while. What does that teach you? God is our song? Let's have a few sermons on that. Let's have a Puritan write 300 pages on that. God is our song. I'd love to hear what John Owen has to say for 200 pages on God being our music. Maybe Isaac Watts, uh, John Owen's predecessor. Uh, John Owen's successor, the man who came after him. Uh, but, But notice this, God is not our slave. God is not our tool. He's not our buddy. The Bible never describes him with those metaphors. If you think wrongly about metaphors, you can miss heaven. Because God is not, he does not come as a buddy, as a chum, as a beggar. He comes in these other pictures, king, conqueror, warrior, husband, father. These are the ways he comes. And you come to him on his terms, or your misunderstanding of the picture will be your eternal misery. The devil is Satan. That's a Hebrew word that means enemy. So really, when we say Satan, we're just saying the enemy. It's a military term. It's an opponent. The whole Bible, speaking of Satan, is couched in military terms. He's an enemy. The church is a light. It's a city on a hill. It's a temple. It's a house. It's a body, a bride, a nation. A sinner is a goat, a child of Satan, a weed, he's dead, he's a plant with no roots, and a criminal. If you just read that list to most people, how would they feel? But those are the metaphors that the Bible uses. This is why when Bill Hybels pioneered the market-driven church in the Chicagoland area about 50 years ago, he began his church by sending out a questionnaire, and the questionnaire asked, why don't you go to church? And if you would think of going to church, what would, what would church have to be like for you to come? He sent out these questionnaires, and he asked people to only return the questionnaires if they did not already have a church. He wanted to start a church, to his credit, of people who did not have a church. So he sent out these questionnaires. The problem is, when the people gave their answers, he did not filter them through the Bible. So they gave three common answers. Number one was, they said, They want shorter, more practical sermons. So he shortened the messages to 20 minutes each. Number two, they said they want no accountability. So he made multiple doors in the church, not just one door. 
There's many, many doors and you can get in and out quietly and no one will ever see you. And he made sure there was only people to greet at the middle door. So if you want to be greeted, you'll go to the middle door. But all the other doors are very easy to get to with no one greeting you. And there was no covenant. There was no uh, church covenant that you had to sign. And you could just slip in quietly. Another thing, they intentionally turned the lights down in their services from the beginning. When I asked the pastor there, not, not the big pastor, but they had, had 30,000 people. So I asked one of the guys that works there who called himself a pastor and was on pastoral staff. He said, oh, we turn the lights down intentionally so that people can be anonymous. And he even said, sometimes we have divorced couples who don't want each other to know that they're coming to the same church. Imagine that. So he said, they'll have the wife come in one door and the husband come in another door so they'll never have to see each other. The lights are turned down. They say, come a few minutes late. That was two. Does anyone want to hear the third thing that they said they wanted to have? Third Third thing was they said they wanted music that is the kind that we hear on the radio. So Bill Hybels hired a band. But, oh, later on, Bill Hybels was able to promote the idea that we should not use words that are offensive to people like sin. We should call it mistake. I think they'd be very offended if we just read the metaphors in the Bible. We're glad you're all here today. We have 30,000 people, and I know that most of you are goats. Next week, there would be 1,000 people. False teachers are called animals, trees of a different kind, dead trees. They're called casual workers. The Christian life is called a journey, a war, a building project, farming a field, a business venture. Salvation is being brought out of slavery. There's a picture, redemption. It's being raised to life. It's being discharged from prison. It's being adopted to a new family. Learn to see the world through analogies. Letter E, look for new yet biblical ways to say things. If you're preaching on repentance again, then find a new way to get at the same old truth. And here's where metaphors are particularly helpful. But don't always speak the way you've always spoken. Insight can sometimes come simply by language or by the order of language. So rather than saying, you must repent, say, have you repented? Just that simple question may be helpful. Use a picture. Rather than saying, you must repent, say, are you like the prodigal son? Examples abound. See the world through analogies. Turn over your page. And let's look at just a few moments on imitations. These two dangers. The way Satan will imitate, imitate insight. He appears as an angel of light. Now, that's a false analogy. That's a trick. Satan is trying to take to himself a metaphor that doesn't fit. He's not really an angel full of the true light, but he takes on the appearance of having light. So Paul the Apostle can write, he is an angel of light, meaning in context, he appears as if he would want to be, and as if to untrained eyes, he would be an angel of light. It's a false analogy. You see, where God is the true metaphor, he always picks the right picture. Satan loves false metaphors. And so if we don't know how to choose metaphors correctly, we will be, and I got this from David DeBrain, which I've already referenced here, we will be forever lost on the most important command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Because even that word love has to be controlled by metaphors. Do you love God the way you love ice cream? or your dog, or your country? Do you even love God the way you love your wife? Jesus said, no. The way you love your wife should look like hatred in comparison to the way you love God. So even those loves, they're not really the same. There's got to be an entirely different classification of love that you have for God. If you don't get those metaphors right, you're going to be missing the whole Christian religion, which is why much of the Bible is communicated in metaphor. Thomas Aquinas said... Again, I haven't read this from Aquinas, but I got this from John Frame, who said that Aquinas said, the whole Bible is metaphor or analogy. Well, here's Satan, and he's using a false analogy. Satan tries the same devices and communication techniques that God has. 
He says, well, if he likes metaphor, I'll use metaphor. I'm an angel. Come to me. Here are two ways that Satan imitates insight. Number one, novelty is not insight. Novelty. Novelty is newness. Friends, the cults are built on novelty. They will have a prophet who says, oh, I had a vision or an experience or I wrote a book. Whether it's Joseph Smith from the Mormons or Charles Taze Russell from the Watchtower, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or any other cult, they're going to have some dogmatic leader and he's going to have some kind of vision and it's a new vision, it's a new twist, it's a new thing, it's a new idea. Whether it's the prophet Muhammad who stands up and says, I've I've got this revelation. Now let me tell you this new thing. Be very careful about following any prophet that has been rebuked in the pages of church history. That's why we just studied church history. Be very careful. If you are involved in a church or a group, or if you've begun to read books, ask yourself, the books that I'm reading, what would church history think about those? If you can find a man that God blessed to see thousands of people converted, and he was a Methodist, and then you can find a man who was a Congregationalist who saw the same thing, and then you can find a man who was a Baptist who was the same thing, and then an Anglican, and there are men like that. John Wesley, George Whitfield, John Bunyan, Richard Baxter... These are men from different denominations, different time periods. They disagreed with each other on some things, but they all agreed on the kinds of things in the confession of faith. Let me ask you, are you involved in a church or an association or following the books of people who, if they were tested by church history, actually everybody already rebuked them? That's novelty. It's not insight. Novelty is not insight. Novelty is something new or unexpected. Insight is often unexpected, but not all unexpected propositions or analogies are insightful. This is where the prosperity preachers really try to deceive. They'll come across with anything new, and they'll try to make you think this newness is actually revelation from God. In general... If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. We are not called to be inventors, but discoverers. We are more like miners who dig down in the earth and bring up the gold that's been there all the time. We are not like the clever guys who sit in the lab and come up with, hey, look at this new thing I invented. Working here at the Wuhan lab. Satan's pastors link ideas together that sound similar, but they do not share the same substance. Because they don't take the time to reflect and they haven't studied logic because of those things. And they know their people haven't. Their people came together to hear some new thing, Acts 17. They all want to hear new things. The human condition hates thinking about death and judgment like Hebrews 9.27 tells us to think about. Hebrews 9.27 says, think about death. The human condition says, no way, I'm not thinking about death. So pastors realize that. And the false pastors say, oh, I'll give them new things that will forever be distracting them from the fact that people are disappearing every single day. You, you, if I described a ship that had several thousand people on it, and it's going across the ocean for about six months, and what's remarkable is that people just begin to disappear, And the people who are riding the passengers, they say, I made friends with this guy, but he's gone. Where did he go? Oh, we don't know. He's just gone. And then other people disappear. And as the the ride goes on, more people come and other people just disappear. And you know what? None of the passengers really cared about what happened to those guys who disappeared. And even when their friend disappeared or their relative disappeared, they still, they, they were shocked for a little bit, but then they got, they got over it. If I told you that happened on a boat ride, you'd say, that's impossible. That's unbelievable. It's happening right in front of us by this demon of, of a false light who tells us that novelty is insight. 
It's when pastors say things like, I want to tell you something you've never heard before. Or, I'm going to give you something new that you've never seen before. Now, I've maybe once or twice said that. And I would say, I'm going to give you something new if you've never read this book or seen this. Knowing that many people that I preach to are are just beginning in their Christian journey. Well, we could say more about this, but let's move on. Letter C, number two, the second danger that Satan brings is this. Politically correct sloganeering is not insight. A slogan is a motto. It's a phrase. It's an idea. It's a short little uh, uh, phrase of words linked together. Like, justice delayed is justice denied. That's a political slogan. It may not be denied because God delays his justice. And that's certainly not a denial of his justice. He's delaying his justice because he's rich with mercy. That's political sloganeering. That's not biblical preaching. That's not truth. But Satan would have us think that phrases, buzzwords, social justice, equal rights, safety for all, helping the poor, solving poverty, defeating racism, or anything else like that. These things may get you votes, but they're not insightful. They're playing off of people's earthly, sensual, and natural fears, and they have oftentimes no root in Scripture. Pastors who find new verses to always talk about earthly prosperity, they talk about breakthroughs, success, these are not insightful. They're merely grabbing at the popular cliches and ideas in order to tickle ears. Newness by itself is not an intellectual virtue. So I close with this. Boring sermons can be boring because they don't grip our hearts. But insightful sermons will reach out and grip our hearts. May God help us to be that way and to do that. Are there any questions?